to the second episode of Off the Shelf, a podcast focused on the objective examination of the life and ministry of William Branham. With me is my co-host, Brian Lynch, coming to us from the Volunteer State. Welcome, Brian. Hi, Ron. How are you? I am doing fantastic. Great. Okay, so last episode uh, in our interview with you, uh, we went through your history and the message, what your background was, and uh, leading up to some of the research that you did uh, in the early stages. And so now we want to move on to some takeaways from that. And uh, the first thing I want to ask is, what is the most profound thing that you've come to realize since you've left the message? That's a very good question. And I, I, I'm going to say something that's um, going to be shocking. It was shocking to me. And that is that people in the message are not really interested in the truth. And I appreciate that's a shocking statement. But honestly, I think most of them are so afraid that they might accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit that they're paralyzed with fear. And they are taught that doubt. There are a number of different kinds of doubt. I call this intellectual doubt. Uh, But they assume that that kind of doubt is bad. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, and this was astounding to me when I realized it, that there was a person in the Bible who believed that Jesus was the Messiah, had seen evidence that Jesus was the Messiah in a very supernatural way. But later on, he began to have some doubt. The question is, so how did Jesus deal with this man's doubt? Now, if you haven't figured out who that is by now, it's a guy by the name of John the Baptist. We see this story in Luke chapter 7. John's disciples come to him and and he's in jail, uh, which is not going to be a fun deal. He's probably in a hole in the ground or some, you know, it's a dungeon. It's more like a dungeon than a jail. All right. And John called these two disciples and he sent them to Jesus to ask them this, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? That's that's clearly a question that's framed in doubt. Sure. And Jesus didn't say to them, how can you doubt me? Right. And he didn't didn't trash them for doubting him. He didn't call them down for doubting them. Sure. It says in scripture at the very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So we replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. So Jesus didn't say, how could you doubt me, John? He didn't condemn John for doubting. What he did was point to the evidence and to tell John's followers to go back to him with the evidence and tell John the Baptist what they saw. So this is critical. Jesus didn't condemn doubt. He simply pointed to the evidence. And Paul does this. He talks to the Corinthian church. He said, speaking about prophecy, two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And they actually use, Paul uses a word there, a Greek word called diakrino, which means to make a judgment on the basis 
of careful and detailed information, to judge carefully, to evaluate carefully. Right. And he says again in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the spiritual person makes careful judgments about all things. So people shouldn't be afraid to doubt. They should examine the evidence. Absolutely. They should examine the evidence. And that's all we're asking people to do. So what is your current view of the message? I think the, event, the, the message is eventually going to die. Right. But if the Lord tarries, it's probably going to take, uh, and, and I can't see that the Lord's going to tarry that long, but it would probably take uh, a couple of hundred years, <laughs> which is an interesting say. Like, well, how can you say that, Rod? And, and I actually could say this from, from historical evidence. There was a man named Montanus in around 160 A.D., he started a movement that was very similar to the message. It was, it's referred to as Montanism, right. although it has nothing to do with Montana. It's just that this guy's name was Montanus. He was seen by his followers as a prophet. He spoke about the end times and when the Lord would return, that he was returning soon. He focused on himself as having a prophetic gift. He had some other couple of people with him who had prophetic gifts too. He taught new revelation. He taught a strict legalism. And he ended up getting hundreds and hundreds of followers. In fact, a bunch of people all moved. Of course, remember, this is before there were tape recorders or any of that. So everybody, if you want to hear what this guy said, you had to move to where he was. A lot of people moved to this place in, in a part of Asia Minor called Phrygia. And his following didn't die down until about 200 years after his death. People just couldn't believe that he wasn't a true prophet. So, I mean, I think that the message will eventually die, particularly given the fact that there's all this evidence now. We've, on our website, believethesign.com, we have now over 500 articles on things that people have put on the shelf. And the question is, at what point in time will people realize that nothing that William Branham said is going to be fulfilled? And every message person needs to ask themselves that question. What happens, and at what point, Will a person recognize that what William Branham said was going to happen isn't going to happen? Right. And if they actually examine the evidence, they're going to be really shocked. We couldn't believe what we found when we started examining the message. Uh, for a period, a set of three years or so, uh, I started looking at it seriously in 2009, as I said in the last podcast was when I left the church we were in. There's a new church started. That started, it was really September 2009 that started my examination uh, of the Bible uh, because of all these trust issues I had and all the doubt I had from seeing what had transpired. So from 2009, we went through, I examined the Bible and then spent from 2010, 2011, 2012, and 2013 examining issues with respect to the message. And of course, at, at one point in time, and it was really when when George Smith told me that that nobody died in the bridge, that was that did it for me. Uh, I just couldn't get past Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22. I just, like, here's the scripture and here's what William Branham said, and I got to go with scripture. I'm sorry. And it was, I mean, it was very devastating for me. How do you follow something for... Th- 
37 years and then say, oh, you know what? I was wrong. Right. Not easy. Not easy at all. No, it's it's staggering. You mentioned your website. It's staggering the amount of information that is available now to someone who actually wants to examine the evidence. Uh, you know, you're, we're not asking people to uh, rely on conjecture or our opinions, heaven forbid, uh, but just to look at, at what's out there and to make a sound judgment according to Scripture. With regard to William Branham himself... There is some disagreement even amongst former message believers about him, about his ministry, his motivations, his character. You know, was he a charlatan? Was he a, a man of God who had a gift of healing? You know, there's a lot of information, conflicting information out there. So what is your view of William Branham? It's difficult to say because honestly, I can't judge the man. All right. So if somebody says, do you think William Branham was a Christian or a non-Christian? There are people who, are, who left the message said, William Branham is not a Christian. He couldn't possibly have being a Christian. I look at that and I say, well, like, I'm not God. I, I, I don't know what was in the heart of William Branham. What my view of him personally has to be looked at what, what can I say of him in respect to how his life and ministry impacts my life and how it should impact that of others. In the end, my view of William Branham is that he was simply an ordinary minister. He is a, an individual who thought way too highly of himself than was warranted. And honestly, I just think it's like of a minister who died 50 years ago, uh, over 50 years ago now, he should be ignored. There are too many failed visions, changed prophecies, and lies. And I know people, if they haven't examined the evidence, they'll find like, lie? You actually think he lied? Yeah. We have proof that he lied. <laughs> I know it's really harsh, but we actually have proof. I didn't believe that he lied. And I thought, well, he's just exaggerating. But, you know, in the end, they're lies. So there are too many lies for him to be believable. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 20 to 22 says, no, you know, don't fear this guy. You know, and so we just have to leave him alone. I can't judge him personally because I can't talk to him, but I can judge his message. The message is not the spoken word. It is the confused teachings of a man who thought he was a prophet. Just like Alexander Dowie, just like Montanus, just like many, many other people. I care very deeply. I cared very deeply for my friends of the message. I still care for them deeply. I love them. And many of them are trapped in fear. They're afraid to doubt. They are afraid that God might kill their wife and daughter like he did to William Branham if they make a mistake. And that's the God of William Branham. He's a God with a big stick. Yeah. That's not the God of the New Testament. Some people in the message, honestly, are Christians. There's no doubt in my mind. Some people in the message are Christians. I was a Christian in the message, but their growth has been stunted by very bad teaching. And I honestly hope, it's my hope and prayer, that people in the message can listen to this podcast in the privacy of their cars when no one is around. I pray that they're going to hear this on their own when they commute into work. I pray that they'd send us a question by email, that their hearts would be open to really consider the truth of God's Word, and that they'd be able to look at the Bible without their message glasses. People have said to us things like this. This is some of the emails I've got from people. You could scream all you want for mercy, but like Esau, you have sold your birthright. You were predestinated to that like Pharaoh. You have crossed the line of mercy willfully. That's a quote from an email someone sent to me. Another person said, you have blasphemed the Holy Ghost. You are not even fit to be foolish virgin. So what is left? Hell. <laughs> 
So, you know, I mean, I look at that, I go, wow, you know, is that the spirit of Christ? Jesus said that God is going to judge you in the same way as you judge others. And he will apply to you the same rules that you apply to others. That's from Matthew 7, verse 2. So, you know, when I look at people in the message, I do think that some of them are are Christians. So are they good Christians? I think they're well-intentioned Christians. But the problem, I mean, and, and these are things that are, are, are really, they weigh heavily on me. You know, when I look at, at the Bible, Jesus said, said clearly that by this, all men will know if, that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. And then he went on to say in another passage that if, if you just love the people that love you, uh, why are you any different from sinners? Because they do the same thing. If you look at what the Bible speaks about love, the love of a Christian is one that goes and leaves the 99 and goes after the one that went astray. I wonder what kind of Christian those in the message are when they don't even make a half-hearted attempt to go after those that have left. I can count on one hand how many people have come and talked to me and said, Rod, you journeyed with us for almost four decades and you left the church. Why did you leave? They don't even understand that I didn't leave the church to say, okay, I'm done with this. I'm out of here. Adios, amigos. That's not what I did. I had the leadership of the church came to me and said, look, Rod, you're asking all these questions. I said, yeah, because I got no answers. But you're shaking everybody's faith. So you need to step down of everything you're doing. And you're thinking about leaving because I, I just said, look, I got to go away. I quit my job. Like This was so important to me that I quit my job. And I told my wife, Cindy, I said, Cindy, I need to get off the train for a while. I got to get away and just figure this stuff out. So I I ended up leaving an amazing job, working for an uh, amazing organization. And I basically, we went away for a number of months just to get my uh, my head around what it meant to me that the message wasn't true. Right. And so I left and we came back. It said, I was told, look, what they told me, look, you're thinking about going away for a while. Why don't you just start early? So I left. Nobody came to ask, well, Rod, where did you go? Now, they probably knew I was asking a lot of questions and I just think they're all afraid. This is a, an evidence of a lack of love is, is clear in the church's, message church's response to the poor or a catastrophe. When disaster strikes... Do people say, thank God no believers were hurt? Or do they extend a helping hand to all those that were hurt? When the poor come into the church, do you lead them to the deacon, the policeman of the church, or do you help them yourself? And when the poor don't come to your church because they don't feel welcome, do you find it easy to ignore their problems? These are all the questions that I never asked myself when I was in the message. But it was an issue that I did recognize that message believers were very susceptible to spiritual pride because they insist that William Brown's teaching constitutes divine revelation. It leads to pride, rather, whereas actually it should lead to love. It should cause us to love everybody. And it's especially tempting for message believers, as they often do, to use their divine revelation as a club on other people. And clearly, I mean, my view now is you really need to be aware of teachers that entice somebody by special revelation or deeper insights into truth, because these appeals are almost always to a person's pride and not to one becoming a more truly loving Christian. Sure. We always heard in the message that love 
was corrective. Love is corrective, which is simply an excuse for clubbing people over the head with the revelation. I mean, I thought about this a lot. True corrective love can only come out of relationship. Somebody comes to one of my kids when they were small and, and spanks them. I could completely lose it on, on whoever it was that spanked my kid. Because you know what? I'm the father. Absolutely. They're not the parent. They have no right to spank my kid. You know, I was harder on my oldest son than I was on the second, the third. By the time the youngest came along, my oldest is saying, like, how come they can get away with everything? And, and you never let me get away with that. <laughs> what I realized is that I didn't need to be as harsh. And how much more does God, who has ultimate wisdom, look at his children and correct them, but corrects them out of relationship. He corrects us out of relationship. And it's not my job to correct someone else. If I got a good friend, I might go up to them and say, you know, I saw you, this happen. Like, you know, I'm really, I'm praying for you. And if you need to talk about it, but I just think it's completely inappropriate to go to, to go to people, particularly people you don't know as they, as they've come to me and said, you know, at best you're a foolish virgin. Now you're not even a foolish virgin. You're going to hell. Wow. That's just filled with love. Right. I, I love the people in the message. And that's why we're doing this podcast. I, you and me could both be doing something else right. instead of doing this. I love the people in the message and I want them to come into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. That is my heart's desire. Amen. Rod, what's a what's a good way for them to get in touch with us? Whether they want to send a question or hate mail or whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll take any kind of email. I mean, if, they, if people have questions, you know, I'm more than happy. Or if they've got a question and they want us to uh, ask a question of my good friend, Jeff Jenkins, who's going to be coming up on a podcast soon, we can pose questions to Jeff. So if you want to get a hold of us by email, uh, there's a link on our offtheshelf.life website, or you can email me directly at rod, R-O-D, at offtheshelf.life. Or you can get in touch with Brian directly at Brian, with a Y, at offtheshelf.life. We are really looking forward to you tuning in again and trust that you're enjoying what you're hearing. And please give us feedback. Feel free to leave a a comment or a question or send an email and we will try to address your questions. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening in. Don't worry about itself.